Welcome to Our Firesides Podcast, where we highlight the real and the raw of faith, family, fitness, fun, and maybe a little finance too. We tell you our real stories of what we've been through and what we hope to take you through in our story as we just open up our hearts and become real with you. Welcome to Our Firesides. In this very special episode and opportunity that I had to interview my very own husband, Preston Mercer, wildland firefighter of over 20 years, we discuss the opportunities and challenges that he has in fighting fires locally and also globally and the opportunities that present themselves on the line and also in his mind, in his body and really the unique sacrifices that wildland firefighters go through and really have to overcome every day, just mentally, physically, emotionally, as they put themselves out there, their lives, and also families back at home, and you know, really understanding what a fireman goes through every day. Stay tuned. Hey there, everyone. We have a very special and unique episode today, a real-life conversation with my wonderful husband, Preston Mercer, wildland firefighter of over 20 years, and really just kind of getting into the head and the heart of a fireman and what he faces as he is actually preparing to leave to go fight fire and kind of just what it looks like in the day in the life of a wildland firefighter. So Preston, tell us now kind of what you're thinking as you get ready to prepare to leave and kind of get in the firefighter mode. Well, I don't know that I'm ever really out of the firefighter mode. I've been doing it for so long. Um, but tonight, for sure, just trying to make sure the kids are good and that you're good and that I've got lots of things done that I need to get done before I leave for two to three weeks and try to make sure I'm mentally prepared for what I'm getting into, knowing that the fire season right now is just crazy. It's insane. The whole West Coast is completely ablaze. There's fire, big fires everywhere, huge fires everywhere, and lots of homes have burned, and there's been lots of lives already lost. So I'm mentally just preparing to go deal with that and knowing that I didn't start the fire, but I'm there to help deal with it and that there may be some angry people on that end, and there may be some tragic things that I see, and um, just trying to mentally prepare for what may be ahead. What does that look like to mentally prepare? Do you kind of visualize yourself going through scenarios and kind of how you'll handle it? Because I know with you, you're a pretty... A wise guy on the optics of things you always reference the optics of things and and having mm. a strategy and, yeah. and having a plan before you get there and I've seen you you know from so many stages of fighting fire uh, as the hell attack and groundwork and then management and operations and so what what does it look like to really prepare for being on the line and and what does it look like for you going into this fire? Like, what will your what will your role be? 
Yeah, well, let me answer the first part of that question because it's really different for every person and every level of firefighter. There's so many different levels, you know, from the very entry-level person that has never fought fire before to somebody like me that's been around for close to 30 years in the wildland arena. Um, you know, the the first-year guy just really wants to make sure his pack is ready and that his two-week gear is ready and that he doesn't forget anything that is going to slow him down or make him look silly and front of the crew and and then there's the the leadership that you get into the middle leadership that's in charge of a squad or a small group of people and then you know and then you move on up and there's people like I'm I, I'm going out as a division so I might have as many as 2 to 300 people working for me on on this fire every day and that takes some mental preparation just knowing that I'm going to be dealing with a big chunk of country and a lot of different uh, people and different um, communication styles and different uh, attitudes that may or may not be there. This is late in the season, and it's been a long season, and it's there's no end in sight. So I know that looking into mm-hmm. it from that perspective, that I probably need to be very focused and tread lightly with personalities and temperaments because I'm sure that there are people that are just going to be short and... There's going to be people that have been out all summer long and they're tired. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm tired. I'll be honest with you. I'm tired. I want to go to bed right now. I'm ready to go to sleep. <clears throat> but I know also know that um, this is important and I, I feel very passionate about what I do. I'm a passionate person and, um, and I have the ability, <clears throat> excuse me, I have the ability to focus when I need to focus and I think that's something that has helped me throughout my career of, and I think it's also been a hindrance at home. I think you have seen me get focused before I really should be focused where, you know, I'm at home and I'm thinking about work instead of thinking about things at home. And that that's really a hard balance for me. Um, you know, I really want to be very present when I'm at home with the kids and with you and yet my mind is always focused on how not to kill somebody or get myself in a a position where I might be compromised through a bad decision. And that's something that is always on my mind. And, um, Mm -hmm. that's a heavy burden. It really is a heavy burden, but it's something that I, I'm willing to carry and that I am proud to carry. And I'm going to do my best to make sure people are in a safe position and a a position where they're going to be able to get the work done appropriately and not get themselves compromised and hopefully, you know, win the battle. Well, yeah, that's what you're there. Put the fire out, right? So give us kind of a typical day. Once you arrive, you're, you know, right now where you're going, you're going to Washington, right? But when you get there, Will there be people from here that go with you and operations that you're used to dealing with? Will there be a whole new, I mean, it takes some time to kind of get used to communication styles, even among leadership. And then once you get there, you kind of find out your fire crews, you have to put them in order. You sleeping, like, can you give us just a typical day of what it looks like for you when you arrive on scene? Well, again, that's an interesting question because every the fire is a very dynamic environment. It's not static. So every day is different. 
and every shift is different. And even during the day, I mean, t- things can change from the morning to the evening to the next day so fast. Um, typically for me in the position I'm going to be going in, you, you start your day at 4 or 4.30 in the morning, get up, get your coffee going, and then start thinking about what the day has in in store and how I'm going to brief the resources and where I'm going to place everybody. And typically the official briefing starts at about six o'clock, typically on most large fires. And we'll, we'll brief on what each division is going to do, where each division has resources. And we take basically a roll count of everybody that's there, um, do the main briefing, and then we do division breakouts. So we'll go over weather, we'll go over um, all those normal things in the big briefing. And then in the, in the division breakouts, you talk to each individual division and all the resources separately as to what is exactly planned for that division for the day and all the resources are there and you kind of go through what the plan is everybody goes out to their respective piece of ground and i mean there could be some divisions are 20 miles long Hmm. um you know i'm expecting a very large division where i'm going right now knowing that there's a hundred miles of open fire line that hasn't been contained. So it's going to be a big piece of ground and hopefully I have adequate resources. And if not, we're going to be spread thin and there's probably going to be a lot of that. And, um, you know, watching your, your back door all the time as you're progressing is important. And what I mean by that is that you don't want to get so far ahead that the fire might catch you from behind because something's not done appropriately or there's not people watching. So we're always thinking about those things, you know, the basics of firefighting, LCES, lookouts, communications, escape route, safety zones, the the 10 and 18 watchouts, and all those things are going through our heads all the time. Um, But a typical day on a division, especially something like this that's large, I would expect it to be spiked out somewhere. I would expect there to be two or three or four divisions worth of resources to be have basically uh, one co-location to get supplies, to get breakfast, lunch, and dinners delivered, and food, you know, the water, the the fuel, all the things that we need. And you basically work your butt off through the whole day, and then at the end of the day, I debrief with my operations folks. Everybody kind of goes and beds down wherever they can find a place to bed down that's safe and out of the smoke. And out of the dust where you're not going to get ran over from people driving around and basically crash and wake up in the morning and do it all over again. And you do that for 14 days in a row or sometimes even longer. And that's just how life works out there. You're in the dust and you're in the smoke all the time. So how close are you to a fire? uh, Well, that depends. Sometimes you're very direct with the fire and sometimes you're semi-direct. So direct attack would be the fire's right there in your face. You feel the flame front. You feel the heat And you on would your sleep. Face. Is there a requirement from how long away you have to sleep from the fire? Uh, how far away? Yeah. How far away you have to sp- set up spike um, camp from the actual fire location? Typically you set up a camp that's not going to be impacted by the, the smoke at night. So what happens with smoke at night is it settles and you get these inversions. So you don't really want to be like sleeping in the bottom of a drainage because that's where the smoke is going to settle. And if, unless you really want to breathe smoke all night long, that's not a place to sleep. So you want to sleep high on a ridge, um, typically out of a drainage bottom, as high as you can 
and typically a, a little bit as far off of a main road as you can because the dust will get you just as bad as the smoke. Um, typically, you're not sleeping right next to the fire. You drive a ways away. Sometimes like a mile. Sometimes a mile, sometimes 10 miles, sometimes 20 miles. Mm. Uh, it just depends on every situation is different. <clears throat> and it kind of depends on your plan for the next day too because if the plan for the next day is we need to get up early and get some burnouts done or we need to get up early and try to catch a slop over or, or some spot fires or whatever it may be then you're going to be a little bit closer to the main fire um, so you can get going as soon as you can in the morning um, every day is a little bit different but and and then the other thing too you got to think about is you're progressing on that division you're progressing in your line construction so you're not always going to come back to where you started that day. You might be five miles further down the road. Um, mm, so, so every day is a little camp. bit different, you know, but you might still have the one drop point where your coffee and your food and whatever else is going to be delivered might be. So you have to drive there and get it. Mm, but it's not where you're sleeping. No. A lot of times it's not where you're sleeping because it's, it's usually a busy intersection and there's too much dust. So as far as sleeping, you kind of you you go prepared with your mat and your sleeping bag, and you're able to sleep wherever. Mm-hmm. Can you give us the story of any creepy crawly creatures that oh, you've had? Oh gosh! So you know, my my whole career has been the majority of it spent in Region Three in Southwest, so Arizona, New Mexico. And there are lots of creepy crawlies in Arizona and New Mexico. I've had spiders, I've had scorpions, I've had centipedes, snakes, you name it. I've had it all. In your sleeping bag? Not in my sleeping bag. I have never had a snake in my sleeping bag, but I've had everything else in my sleeping bag. Um, The first fire I ever went on, a guy named Jim Crowley, Big Jim Crowley, uh, was we were coyoted out. We had nothing. We had no sleeping bags. We had no blankets. We had nothing, just our packs. And we we were on a very steep slope. So we dug ourselves out some places where we could bed down for the night. And at one or two in the morning, he jumps up and screams and runs down the hill with no headlamp, no, no, no <laughs> nothing. And is just flying down this hill. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's going to die. It's so steep. Well, come to find out he had a three and a half foot rattlesnake that crawled up his backside <laughs> and was trying to stay warm, basically from his butt to his neck. <laughs> and he realized what it was and just lost his mind and started running down the hill. You can and, never go to sleep <clears throat> again after that. I did not sleep a wink after that, and neither did he. I'm sure he didn't either. And it's such a hard... <laughs> You've already had too much smoke, haven't you? 26 years of it. Yeah. Darn it. Uh, It's hard to kind of fathom the amount of strength that is needed, and then you're sleeping on the ground. Like, you get pretty darn exhausted. Yeah, you can become a a zombie, really. I mean, there's a lot of... like battle fatigue. There's a lot of days you wake up, and your head is pounding because you had too much smoke. And you've just breathed too much dust and, you know, you know that there is something going on with your oxygen saturation levels because your head just hurts and it shouldn't hurt. Um, so you know that you had too much smoke the day before or, or something. I guess. Usually it's smoke. 
and you wake up and you just you just keep going i mean there's nothing else to do you just got to do your job and there's nobody else that's going to come in and take your place so so you were telling me about a fire that you had down in the tunnel where there was 32 medic <clears throat> calls on just that fire from heat exhaustion yeah it was a few years ago and it was a very steep um brushy nasty fire um it was very hot and RHs were actually the RHs were a little bit higher. I think that had something to do with it. And thirty, I think it was thirty-two medical calls on that two-week-long fire. It was it was ridiculous. It was a handful every day, and people just going down from heat exhaustion. They just couldn't keep up with their water intake and and just mm-hmm. the amount of exertion. It was just too much, and um, nobody died. But it was you know there was a lot of pretty scary close calls and you've had some i i know that you've also had some people break and roll ankles and knees and all kinds of stuff and how it just affects kind of the the role of the routine and your strategy and resetting and well and that's one of the things as a division supervisor and as operations anybody in the in the the overarching thought process they have to think about the incident within an incident because that's what's really going to get Mm-hmm. you in trouble when the fire's raging and somebody gets hurt, somebody gets pinned down by a log, somebody breaks a leg, breaks a knee, gets stung by a bee and mm-hmm. goes down with anaphylactic shock. It happens. It happens on every fire. Mm-hmm. And you always hope it won't happen on your fire or your division, but you have to be prepared for it. And if you're not prepared for it, that's when it's going to happen. Uh, you know, that's just how it works. Murphy always shows up when you don't want Murphy to show up and somebody or some a vehicle will break down as the fire's crossing your line and all of a sudden the vehicle's trapped. And what do you do with those people in the vehicle? You know, those kinds of things just happen. Um, so you're always thinking about those things. You're always planning on worst case, worst case scenario. scenario. And I hate to think about worst case scenario, but if you don't, if you're not planning that mindset. for the worst case scenario... That is when you have a potential to really put somebody in harm's way. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you don't want to talk about people dying, but it happens. I and mean, that's just the reality of my business. People die. And yeah. I don't want to be the one that makes the decision that sends somebody in and they get killed. So one of the things that, I mean, I, I can distinctly, I remember every moment when we heard the call and, about the Yarnell um, mm. on the radio. I mean, before it was news, but you were kind yeah. of in communication, and those, you know, those mm. are things where, you know, you know everybody, and those are kind of always in the forefront, but also background of your mind when you're going into. I would say as you're leaving home and kind of preparing to go on battle line, and you know what do you need to do to make sure your head is focused, and even when you're tired and dehydrated and not get the right food and fuel that you're used to like how do you kind of put all those things aside and be able to still think strategy and keep showing up when you know the the reality of where your body's at can be very challenging it it is challenging and you know it's unfortunate that I I knew all the guys on the crew that died at Yarnell and I you know, it's just one of those things. It's part of the deal. Um, that was a bad day, no doubt. And you don't want to see any more of those days. So, 
you know, there's a lot of different ways people cope with the stress. And a lot of people, um, myself included, I like coffee. I just do. I like to drink coffee and it helps me stay sharp. And I might brew a cup. I might brew a whole thing of coffee at eight o'clock at night just because I need to maintain some focus because we're going to do a burnout operation till midnight. I, you know, it's just the way it is. Some, you know, the hard part for me, the older I get and the more I want to take care of my body is the diet because the, the food that's provided on those fires is not, Horrid. it's not that Should great. Should be illegal. <clears throat> uh, there's a lot of junk food. There's a lot of empty calories and I don't, operate on empty calories very well. I need something that's good, has vitamins, minerals, all the things that I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I do now in, in that instance, I, I always take a mixed bag of nuts that are high in quality protein and, and the fat that I need. And I always take protein bars of some kind, usually a pro bar and various flavors because I get sick of them after a while. And honestly, there's a lot of times I just live on those because the yeah, hand, electrolytes and electrolytes. Yeah, that's really important because you do sweat a lot um, when you're working a lot. Now, as a division, I don't necessarily do all the manual labor. I'm I'm doing a lot of thinking and a lot of paying attention Which and talking on the radio and and doing those things. But still, I like to hike. I like to walk the line, and I like to do. I do like to work hard. And it's important to balance the electrolytes. It's important to balance your diet. And, you know, a bag full of Oreo cookies and Doritos is not my idea of a healthy diet. <clears throat> so I typically always have some kind of healthy food with me that will get me through the day. Right. Now, you said something about the operations at night and doing burnout. So they'll there'll be dozers on the line and... You'll have those kind of going through. Are the fire are there firefighters working all night through and taking shifts to manage and do operations? Every through the night? fire is different. So there's there are some fires where we have day and night shifts. There's some fires we have day swing and night shifts, um, and then there are some fires we just have day shifts and we're all bedded down at night. And um, those are typically the easier ones to manage because there's a lot less people in and out of the field all day long and a lot less briefing that you have to do. But no matter how it works out, there's always a lot of thought going into the day's shift and the next day's shift. And you're always trying, I'm always trying to think three to five days out. What am I going to need on my division or this fire for the next three to five days? And where am I going to be in the next three to five days? And it, you know, right sizing the resources is important. Right now, there are so many fires that the resources are very limited. You, mm-hmm. you cannot get enough resources to get the work done because there's so many big fires. Mm-hmm. And all these fires are burning down communities. They're all burning down homes and killing people. And when that happens, and there are so many of them, there's just not enough resources out there. Right. So how big, how many acres is the fire you're going to? Uh, I th- well, I think it's 220,000, 220, acres right now. So how many firemen in divisions? I have no idea until I get you, there. Yeah. I In my mind, would I would want, well, in my mind, I would want 30 divisions on that many acres, but that's not going to happen. We're going to have then, 10 probably. 
because of limited resources with so many yeah, fires right so now. so many fires, yeah. And then 10 divisions will have up to 200 firefighters underneath them. Depending on resource availability, a, a normal year, I would say, yeah, you would have 100 to 200 people on each division. But right now, I bet you I will be lucky to have a hotshot crew and a handful of engines. So it's going to be limited. They bring in all the water and the resources on the water trucks. And yes, tanks. we have really good logistics. I mean, our the way we manage fires is is just it's top notch. I mean, these we have it figured out. It's really good. Um, our logistics people are really what drives our workforce. If we don't have good logistics, we don't have good firefighters. We don't have people that are fed and watered and taken care of. So, um, the team I'm going with is the Southwest Region Team Two, and it's it has a really good logistics group. Um, so I'm expecting to have whatever I need as far as supplies go. Um, hopefully that's the case. So you worked with these people before. Yeah, a lot of times you I, keep the teams together, right? Yeah, these teams are formed during the winter months. And then they work together all year long. And typically they're this very similar structure from year to year with the same players and the same people mm-hmm. in certain positions and and yes this this group is um it's going to be slightly different in the operations roles they're not everybody's going to be there that is normally there due to hunts and you know diff- various things it's been a very long season too people just need a break um so it's going to be slightly different but overall i think it's going to be the same result so the question that everybody's tired of hearing about <clears throat> but curious still what effect has COVID had on firefighting this year? And what does that look like as a division op to kind of prepare for? You know, it's been more of a pain in the butt than it's been anything real. I mean, we all have to wear our masks when we're at briefings and and all of that. But the reality of it is they're, everybody's still out there to get the work done. And the real mm-hmm. threat's the fire. It's not right. COVID. And we're all firefighters. We're all first responders. We all know that every day we could roll onto something that could potentially kill us. And that yeah, is, much more than COVID. Yeah, COVID's not really a concern. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'll just be honest with you. I, I don't even think about COVID until I realize, oh, wait, I have to have a mask on. And I, I'm getting ugly looks from people. So then I put a mask on. You know, on the fire line, we're not wearing masks. We're doing our thing. And you have to breathe. And yeah with a mask on it's very difficult to get enough oxygen so anytime you're hiking up a hill with a pack on and and working it's it's just hard so we do not require masks on the fire line it's just when we're socially knowing that we're we may not be able to socially distance that six feet at a briefing or in the chow line or whatever it may be then you put the mask on so fire camp does kind of... <clears throat> yes, fire camp requires masks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. So as far as kind of getting ready to leave tomorrow, your bag is packed, what what do you normally have to go through in preparing? And what do you take? And you drive to the fire because you have to have your truck. Mm-hmm. And so kind of give us your yeah. schedule. So- this fire is a little bit different than most because it's it's mid-September, knowing that we're going into fall and winter. So in my mind, I need to prepare for an early winter. I might need to have some 
warm clothes, even though I'm going to a fire that's burning and it's hot right now. In 10 days, it might not be hot. It, we might get a cold front come out of the Arctic Circle that drops temperatures well below freezing and we might get a foot of snow. So <laughs> I have to have everything I need for 110 degrees all the way down to below freezing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I'm preparing for. I have two different sleeping bags. I've got a 40 degree bag and I've got a zero degree bag. And depending on the weather, I'm, I'll use whatever I need to use. Um, I'm kind of fortunate that way. I, you know, in an overhead position, I can take two different sleeping bags in my own vehicle and not worry about space. Whereas a crew mm-hmm. might just have a 40 degree bag and then they're going to freeze their tail off if it drops below freezing. And or, every firefighter has to have a shelter like a... Yeah, you, you have to carry a shelter with you in your pack at all times when you're shelter. on the fire line. Yeah, it's a fire shelter and they, they weigh a lot and they're cumbersome and they're a pain, but they have saved lives in the past, so they're required. Mm-hmm. So as you prepare to leave, kind of, you've been doing this now for... 26 years. 26 years. You've been to Washington before. New area. Lots of times. New area, though. Different Mm. place to go. Yeah. How many many states and places have you been? I don't think I've ever counted how many states, but uh, I, I have never been on a fire in North or South Dakota. Every other Western state I've been on a fire. I've been on fires in Texas, Oklahoma, Florida. I've been on a fire in Mexico once and a, a couple of fires in Canada. Never been to Alaska. So yeah. pretty much all of So the, all the fire behavior states. is different in different states, but you kind of yeah. can quickly adapt to kind of knowing what you how you need to operate. The weirdest place to fight fire is Florida. You get the weird palmetto and it could you could have a hundred every every night it's a hundred percent humidity. And everything's dripping with water. You could even rain the night before. And the next day, if the humidity gets below 50%, that stuff burns. It's just the weirdest environment. And it's all flat. I don't like it out there. Um, everywhere else, though, I kind of, I, it's more intuitive for me. It's easier to, mm-hmm. to deal with. And every area has different fuel types, like California. Southern California has the brush. Um, Northern California has big timber. And poison oak, and it's nasty. And Washington State's got big timber in some places, and sagebrush in others. And you know, it's all—I've seen it all, so I'm not too concerned about that. But what's unique this year is just the fire weather has been so hot and so dry and so windy that fires are moving just much faster and larger and a single period burning period than anybody's ever seen. So do we know how this fire started? I no, I haven't looked into it. I don't know. But after you guys get it out, there'll be people that come in and kind of study <clears throat> the, the scene. You know, people and... ask that all the time. Uh, you know, the reality of it for me is I didn't start the fire. I'm just there to help put it out. I honestly, there's a lot of times I don't know what the cause is on these large fires. And they um, won't know until after, but they'll come in and research it and study it, and they no, can find yeah, where it started from? Yeah, oh yeah, we have fire investigators that are very good, and they know 
roughly exactly within a tenth of an acre typically where the fire started. It's amazing how they and, can figure that out. And they'll they'll know whether it was human caused or lightning caused for sure before it even you know that day if there were if there has been no lightning then we obviously know it was a human caused fire. Then you just have to figure out how it started and where it started and you know if there's any evidence that we can pin it on somebody. We know there are a lot of fires across the West right now that have been started by people. Even like I mentioned to you the other day, there's a gender reveal where the poor guy you know, had his his thing blow up and started a fire. And we're, I don't think it went like ten thousand acres or something. But and now he's responsible for all that. In yeah, jail. he's got to pay for all of the expenses fire. and potentially go to jail for that. So fires you know, not not something to mess with. You don't want to mess around with starting a fire in conditions we have right now. Then they'll find you. Well, you don't want to kill anybody or burn your well, neighbor's no, house down. Saying. You know, I mean, it's just, it's insane. The, to me, it's crazy because I, it's, it's, my, it's my nature to be thinking about fire all the time. But it's not everybody's nature to do that. And most people don't even consider the fire danger. And that is where we run mm-hmm. into the problem of people doing silly things, you know, welding something in dry grass. And next thing you know, You've got a huge fire going and you didn't even realize you started it by welding or whatever it may be, dragging a chain on a road. Um, there have been people that have started fires intentionally because this kind of stuff brings out crazy people. And crazy people like right to create chaos. And <clears throat> they see an opportunity to create chaos and they'll do it. Mm-hmm. That's scary. You know, you might see people die from that situation and that's not easy for me to swallow. I don't like that. Um because then you're putting all the firemen in dangerous harm's way. And, and all their families all the at public home. And their kids and their wives. and uh, Oh, man. I don't like Spreads. thinking about that. <clears throat> but it's part of who society is right now. There's some weird people in society. Doing hard things. Doing stupid things. Right. Well, interesting. And I know that even for me... You know, it's been interesting when there's fires that break out around here and everybody asks me so many questions and what you're doing, where's the fire at? And does he, does he think he's going to get it out and how long will it last? And, you know, fire behaviors, it's very interesting. And a lot of times I don't get to ask you a lot of questions because Mm -hmm. when you get home, you don't really want to talk about fire anymore and we have to get to business, but I have done a very poor job. <clears throat> of instructing and talking about my job at home. I realized that last year more than ever when we had that local fire, the museum fire, and you and the kids asked so many questions. I'm like, my gosh, I take all these things for granted, you know, and it's just because I leave work at work and I come home and I don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And and I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know. There's always a balance, but... Yeah. I do appreciate you sharing. I know it's hard as you're getting ready and we juggle a lot, but I think it's important for people to understand really what you go through and how much you sacrifice and what, you know, what it looks like and the logistics and just the reality of the highs and the lows and, you know, the passion. I mean, I know as you were getting called to this fire, there was a part of you that was you want you feel responsibility you want to get online and you're gifted and you really know how to organize and keep things running i mean that's one of the things that you really shine at in our home and elsewhere is just 
having a, a broad view of what needs to be done and, and doing it very tactically. And that's why you excel at what you do. I think the, the hardest part is knowing that when I leave, I just, I, everything at home is just on hold and, you know, I, the burden's on you and it's on the kids and it's, there's nothing I can do to help. I mean, it, I'm basically not available and I, you know, it really makes me reflect on our real true heroes, the military that goes overseas for so long, you know, six to 18 months at a time. And, you know, that sacrifice is so enormous where I'm just going for a couple of three weeks, which seems like a long time. Yeah. But, but then when you put it in perspective with, you know, the, the military forces that go and they go, you know, that long and then they go again and then they go again and then they go again. That is so much more difficult than anything I've ever had to tackle. So, you know, I I truly appreciate the military folks doing what they do. And I feel, you know, like we do a small part to help our communities be safe. And um, but they're it's a you huge know, part. They're they're the ones tackling the whole world and helping the whole world be safe. So I feel like what I can do is a little bit, but what they do is a lot. So as we close, what, if you can think of, what's the hardest thing of firefighting while in firefighting and what gives you the most joy or satisfaction in your job? I think the hardest part is the mental capacity to just keep going. Mm -hmm. Um, Knowing that every time you go, you're leaving everything behind and you might not be able to answer the phone when your wife calls or your kids want to talk. That's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that's, I mean, for me, that really, that's every single day of the whole year. If there's not snow on the ground, there's a chance I'm going to be gone fighting a fire. Um, that is the reality of our life. You have a phone by your head yeah, and you're I've on got, 24-7. I've got that damn phone on. It's all the time. And you just never know when you're going to get called. But it's always there. It's always in the back of my mind. I know I have to be available be and be ready. In an instant. And it might, I might have to be there in 10 minutes or within an hour locally, or I might have to go all the way to Florida, you know, whatever it is, you just have to always mentally be prepared. And that, that really can, it can wear on you. It can be a a burden. Um, but at the same time, it really depends on your mental capacity to be able to say, I'm going there to serve my community and my country with the skills that I have and do the best job I can do. And that's all I can do. It's all I can, that's what I'm here for. I, you know, um, it is exciting. I, it used to be a lot more exciting for me. I used to really, really like the thought of going to a big giant fire that just was 300 mm-hmm. foot flames and just ripping. But now I, I just look at the country that's been destroyed and, and these big giant old trees that are, they're all burned up and it's just sad to me now I don't like seeing these big fires um it's not as exciting it's it's more of a burden than it is excitement now yeah I definitely can see that like in watching you when we first got married it was like and cell phones weren't as prevalent. I had a pager back in the day. <laughs> remember the pager? Yeah. Uh, and I remember you would be gone on fire and we like we wouldn't be able to talk for... 45 days one it time. It was so yeah. hard and crazy. Yeah. You'd be in remote places where there was no cell service and mm-hmm. cell phones were like just so big and bulky and blocky. And 
But, you know, like when you would leave, you're just like, oh yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. Like just going to eat it up. Like I can't wait to get on the fire. Like mm-hmm. you missed me and I knew that, but it was like, it was just such an adrenaline and a thrill and you were jumping on helicopters and flying across the state and helicopters and like, you know, as a young budding man and walking into that and just having such a, a thrill and a rush all the time. And then now like, <laughs> you're, you're just an old man now, 42 and 43. Yeah, 43, yeah. Family of six and, you know, like your heart's pulled in so many different directions and you, yeah. you feel like my heart's really at home with my kids and with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that it's, it's, it's hard to leave the kids and leave you. And even if it is only for two or three weeks that, you know, to kids, that's an eternity. They don't know you know, every day when I talk to them, they'll ask me, when are you getting home? That's the question every single day, mm-hmm. all the way up until the day I get home. Dad, when are you getting home? I'm going to get home today. Oh, good. You know, so, you know, that's hard. Um, but it's part of it. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a small part of it. So what gives you the most joy? Um, having a sense of purpose and a job well done is really, mm-hmm. um, I think it's something that I think, I think every man wants a sense of purpose and, I'm fortunate to have a very definite sense of purpose when I'm on fires. There's no doubt what your job is and what you're supposed to do. And um, to get a job done and done well, that's that's good. I like that. And keeping people healthy and safe. Well, and That's all part of it. That's what I mean by a job well done. Mm-hmm. That's that first and foremost, keeping people safe and healthy and corralling the fire. That's all part of it. Yeah, I mean, I... I always appreciate your line of this emergency is not going to become my emergency for my family. You know, like if it's a fire, it will eventually get out and not being so. Just because it's somebody else's worst day doesn't mean it's going to be my worst day. And I've got to keep my head on me. And, you know, I've had a lot of people scream at me to put the fire out. And it's like, yeah, I will. But I'm not going to risk my life. We're not going to get anybody killed doing it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, stop screaming and. We'll calm people down and try to get them evacuated and all the things that come along with big fires. You know, that's just part of it. Well, we're so thankful for you and leaving a legacy. I just a have legacy. a very small part in this whole grand scheme of things, but it's something that I enjoy and I appreciate the the kind words of the appreciation and you know, Small is not insignificant. What What's really funny to me, though, is that I also manage a lot of prescribed fires. And the difference in people praising us for putting out fires and then the hate that we get for lighting a fire in a different time when, you know, you're trying to prevent large fires from getting big next year, you know. Yeah, right. So it, there's a huge dichotomy there of, Oh, you wonderful firefighters. And then, oh, I hate you dang firefighters. You're lighting fires. Just you know? a few months later. Yeah. And it's just realizing, a different time of year, you know. Realizing that that's one of the most important it's ways to prevent fire. It's part of preventing large catastrophic fires. Yeah, it's a big deal. But people don't see it for what it is because they just don't want to deal with the smoke. And I don't, guess what? I don't like smoke either. Yeah. I don't. Hard. I don't like it. 
has affected you. <clears throat> yeah, you that's why I now. keep <laughs> coughing. I it just I have had day. lots of smoke in my lungs over the years, and I haven't ever had a scan. I don't know that I really want to because I don't want to know how bad it is. But between the the dust particles and the smoke, it's not good. Yeah, you guys risk a lot. <clears throat> yeah. Well, thank you, and we'll be happy when you get home. Yeah. We love you. Hang tight. Until next time, keep your fires burning, keep sharing stories, keep learning and growing. Let's put out those fires in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our communities, and really support those out there putting their lives on the front line. To finish today, I wanted to close with a funny story with our little boy, Axel, number six uh, of four boys, actually, and two girls. And he has just, he is his father's little shadow and he just loves and adores his father from day one they've always had a very unique special relationship and so firefighting's been you know a, an icon of our home and little Axel has been obsessed with fire himself including starting fires um, we've had multiple events in our home of starting fires and this one in particular, I was sitting in our little schoolroom, which has huge windows and opens up to the two and a half acres of property that we have. And I was working on a project and the, the playgrounds were kind of behind me at my back, actually, and uh, to get out of the sun that day. And my father called and said, so what's Axel doing today? What's he up to? And I thought, well, he just walked out the door. He's going outside. So I turned my head and I looked outside and sure enough, he was out there starting a fire, big old bush. And he went out there just curious, uh, about four years old, just curious as ever. And uh, threw down the phone, ran out there, started shoveling, throwing dirt, getting water buckets. But, uh, you know, looking back, we, we are very thankful for lots of the fires that we've missed in our home. And, you know, you, there's always ways of looking at it, but they have been learning opportunities. And last night as we were sitting around the table discussing fires, uh, little Axel said, yeah, I've learned. I'm not going to start any fires anymore. Fires are bad. And uh, it's just interesting, the process that we go through and learning through our challenges and interest really to um, where it affects people and um, just our little fires and that we can start. Remember too, in James, it says that our tongue, our words are like a flame and how we can light up a whole forest fire with a single word. And that really is the heart of it, that we have in our words the power to really bring life or to start a wildfire in our, um, just quickly in our tongues and in the words that we say. And so until next time, remember, keep your fire, the passion in your heart burning. 
and think about the fires that we can start with the words that we say in James 3 5 it says consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark the tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body it can corrupt the whole person set the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell watch your words stay safe but keep the fire and the passion burning for your life inside. Until next time, subscribe. We appreciate your five-star reviews. Subscribe to our podcast and any questions or content that you would like to see more of. Please email us at mercer at ourfiresidespodcast.com. Thank you for joining us on today's Our Firesides podcast. As we continue to strive to bring you relevant content, feel free to communicate with us with any questions, comments, or thoughts. Any resources or helpful tips will be included in our show notes. We look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, keep the fire burning.